name's Ethan Solanke and this is The Close Catch-Up, a series of conversations between friends about creativity, life and style. I founded a practice called Matter and ultimately what we do there is humanise materials in order for us to form healthier relationships towards, towards them so that we begin to treat the non-human world with the care and respect that they fully deserve. We are also here, well, I'd like to introduce you to David. Um, I would prefer David to, I guess, introduce himself. He's an incredibly prolific person. Um, so yeah, please go ahead. Hi, Sit Uh But yeah, we're, uh, we're in conversation today, catching up, uh, as has been duly noted. But uh, yeah, I'm David Zilber. I am um, a Canadian living in Copenhagen, Denmark. I am a chef, fermenter, author, photographer, have my hands in many different pots. Um, but most of that revolves around the world of food. Uh, I've been a chef for almost two decades now and have lived in Copenhagen for the past six years, most of which has been spent at restaurant Noma. Uh, voted world's best restaurant four times over. Uh, and for the majority of my tenure there, I was running their fermentation lab, a test kitchen dedicated to the investigation of the microbial world and how that impacts food through the slow transformation of ingredients into delicious products, basically. Um, I've since left uh, as of this year and have uh, gone on to start kind of forging my own path in, in different fields, but we can get into that in a bit. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be catching up with Sital here. We are recording over the internet, so even though this is an audio podcast, I'm looking at her face, and she is a couple continents over. But uh, Sital, for all the listeners, and even for my own edification, can you tell me where you are and, and what you're doing? Yes, um, I'm actually in Lagos, Nigeria, and I am currently sat with the most beautiful view um, of the Lagosian Lagoon, um, and there's a whole stretch of palm trees right in front, and very low-rise buildings, so you can actually see the landscape um, very clearly, and it's a very warm sunny bright day um so feeling quite lucky to have such a view and also because i'm on the sixth floor it feels like i'm overlooking a landscape which um feels very sort of um tropical in comparison to where i would normally be would be in <laughs> london <laughs> and obviously right now it's winter time there so and also a lockdown situation. So I have a lot more freedom to move here because we're not in a lockdown here. So it feels um, very freeing or liberating to some degree. Um, Sun sunshine can do that. Sunshine yes, can do that completely. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have your traditional view. I'm, I'm sat in my apartment in Copenhagen also on the sixth floor and I can't complain that it's a bad view because uh, perched from, you know, my, my penthouse apartment uh, in downtown Copenhagen, I can look out over the city and just make it over all of the, you know, neighboring uh, kind of classical Scandinavian style ziggurat structures and, and see the church spires in the city skyline. But um, above that skyline, it is gray. It is cold. It is wet. <laughs> it is the classic North Sea weather pattern for this time of year. So uh, I, I envy you in that respect. My, my skin craves vitamin D and salt water. And when you said Lagosian Lagoon, God, my mind just snapped to an image of flipping through a Dr. Seuss book and seeing all of these green, verdant, aquamarine colors. So um, Oh, no, it's not this color at all. <laughs> no? The last time no. I was in Africa, it, it was those colors. So, but, but if it's not, oh, fair enough. I mean, with a population of like 19 million in the city, this lagoon is not going to be aquamarine. <laughs> a, bit, a bit dustier, perhaps. Yeah, yeah well, fair enough. Fair enough. You could say that. 
yeah. Okay. Mercury. But maybe how we could begin the conversation as well is to, um, I guess, set the scene of where we met and how we met also, which I think was pre-NOMA 2.0. Yep. Um, that was a long time and, ago. Right. <laughs> and um, I reached out to yourself and Ariel mm-hmm. Johnson who you both were, you were both working at Noma as, I guess, fermentation experts mm-hmm. and chefs. And you took me for a tour of the fermentation lab along with Lars Williams, uh, which was incredibly inspiring. Um, so just to give you context, um, I, I have visited Copenhagen many times. I think Copenhagen is, the second visit, most visited city that I have experienced. And so I know it fairly well. Um, and this trip in particular was one where I was kind of cementing myself a bit further into the culinary world. Um, so it was really incredible to be, yeah. You were there for a conference, no? I remember that you, you had come to like go speak or attend and, and to paint this picture for the listeners, um, you know, Noma, uh, when, I, when I worked there, and I spent you know, basically a third of my cooking career uh, with this restaurant, <clears throat> um, it, it used to be situated in an old whaling house, uh, this, this ancient 400-year-old um, building that was a heritage site in Copenhagen. I mean, it's still there, uh, but it was on the ground floor of uh, what had been transformed into the North Atlantic House. Uh, which housed museums, was, was the embassy for Iceland and Greenland um, and the Faroe Islands. So you had this big history of, of you know, the, the Viking exploration of the North Atlantic seas um, encapsulated in this one historic building uh, that sat on the old ports of Copenhagen where you know, whale blubber used to be boiled and purified and refined. Uh, And Noma's inception was very much tied to what this was meant to be as a cultural center. Um, Noma, of course, being a restaurant that was was established to explore, um, you know, the the cultural boundaries of of a people uh, and a place and and kind of distill a cuisine from this loose geographical border of of the Scandinavian region uh, and cook within those restraints. Uh, so the fermentation lab was us leaning heavily into that. It was constructed by those two people, uh, Lars and Ariel, uh, that Sital mentioned. Uh, I joined the team about a year into its existence. Um, and it was just our full-time job to discover things, to discover new flavors, to look um, across geographical boundaries and understand techniques and processes that might have been lost to history or maybe not translated into English or, or the Western world and see if we could come up with analogs, with um, new products using uh, old inspirations. And that's what we did on a full-time basis. So uh, on that day, I remember explaining all this to you and, and you know, reaching into a, a, a bucket to pull out fermenting, you know, Belitis mushrooms. Um, with their yellow stained juices kind of flowing through a, a vacuum sealed bag to create the anaerobic oxygen free environment that would allow these beneficial microbes to transform the flavors of a mushroom into something far more complex, far more delicious, acidic and unctuous and, and just a bit musty and funky. Uh, and I remember us having a conversation about the, the potential of mycelium for creating materials. Um, I think it was at that time you whipped out your cell phone and, and showed me some of these amazing packaging materials um, that maybe even Space 10 and Ikea was dabbling with, um, you know, actually putting into production for sustainable packaging for, for all the furniture that they built. Um, now, of course, even though that butts up against the world of fermentation, it sits kind of adjacent. You know, I deal with food and, and building materials out of living organisms is an adjacent field but not one that I'm inherently specialized in. What does that look like today? Are people still making huge leaps and bounds in, in the world of growing organic materials? 
Yeah, this there's a whole world out there where the microbial kingdom is being explored for so so many applications and a few of them I can describe. Um, so we have one material called malai, which is a bacterial cellulose. And that bacteria is a strain from coconut water. Hmm. And this particular material is actually based in South India and Kerala. Um, a couple of my friends run it. And they're positioned in a coconut production facility. And the amount of coconuts that enter this space and, and leave this space is, I think, has increased maybe 500% over the last five years. Mm -hmm. So it's very, it's, the scale is enormous mm -hmm. and kind of colossal, I can't even imagine. Um, but with that in mind, there are a lot of coconuts that actually aren't, um, the water isn't drinkable uh, because either it's uh, gone too far um, and the taste has sort of deteriorated to some degree. And therefore that water would normally end up in the water streams and soil and actually would cause quite a lot of damage and harm because of the types of bacteria that have existed in that particular, I guess, um, yeah, substrate or Water. things. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so Malai have taken it upon themselves to see the capacity at which that, that particular bacterial cellulose can actually produce a leather-like material if mm. they place it into a vat in a human environment, which um, naturally South India is. Mm -hmm. So there's the climate conditions that it exists within is and is controlled enough for it to kind of thrive basically and so once the coconut water is placed into the vat um it has the ability to grow over a course of say 10 to 14 days mm -hmm. and it sort of attaches itself onto sisal which is an incredibly sort of strong and durable material and it just rises ultimately and the bacteria just rises in like a scoby ultimately um for those of you who don't know scoby is like how we make kombucha for example so it's a very similar process and then it goes through like same similar processes as like how you make paper so it'll go through like a paper mill to give it consistency and the longer you actually leave it in the vat for uh, the thicker it will get yeah. and what, then it's dehydrated so removing all the water and it ends up feeling and behaving like leather and therefore has the ability to be placed into leather like goods so they now make small leather goods, which are, you know, wallets, even footwear now, actually, um, bags and all sorts of things. And what's so mysterious for me about this, or what's, it's a contradictory for me, this material, because on one hand, it has the ability to behave like leather and almost has that durability to it. Um, but at the same time, it's, naturally biodegradable yeah yeah indeed and i'm just like those two worlds should never really exist um and mm -hmm. in one material so like normally they're the polar opposite so i think it's quite remarkable how something like that has the ability to still age um when it's not living anymore yeah. that's super cool you know, I've seen I've seen uh, a lot of people in the space of kombucha, um, and maybe there are some shared genes in between the bacteria that uh, your friends in India are, are investigating. And you know what I've seen from people in, in in kombucha factories harvesting their scobies and things like that. What are your thoughts around food or bacteria 
being used as materials or like you know crossing over to the material world so to speak um well i i mean it's it's always been done you know um i i think that in the past hundred years with you know the boom of industrialization and and this huge energy surplus we've we've wrought from the earth in the form of fossil fuels be it coal or oil or natural gas we've really forgot how little we used to waste you know um th this old english word for the off cuts of an animal even awful is actually an old norse word and it's funny that i live in denmark and can pick up these little etymological histories um, but afald in, in Danish means garbage, like, like the garbage chute in your apartment building. Um, but it was never really considered garbage. All of it would be used. Um, you know, the bones would be used to make stock. The, the hides would be cured to make leather. Um, no, no part of an animal that was used on a farm as a draft animal would ever be wasted um, in, in the days of peasants or feudal lords or things like that. You even go back to ancient Mayan societies and the fact that they would grow specific gourds that could be used as jugs or urns, like the water bottle you're just drinking out of right now. Um, so I, I, humans have long turned to the natural world to harvest its products as materials. Um, you know, we, we build our homes out of wood and, and thatched roofs. It's no different from seeing like uh, a warbler build its nest from fallen twigs. Um, so there's lots of parallels there, except we tend to build with straight lines and right angles. Stretching into the microbial world, I mean, it is the next frontier. Like it was so unknown to us what these things were up until maybe even like 150 years ago. Um, you know, Antoine von Leeuwenhoek, um, the, uh, the Dutch inventor, only came up with a microscope like what was like 200 or 250 years ago and then it took a while longer before people actually understood that these little animalcules these invisible monsters sitting in a drop of pond water actually meant something to our health to the foods we produced so in the in the grand scope of human history our understanding of microbiology our, our understanding of of what this whole domain of life sits underneath our eye actually means to us is evolving at like a, a breakneck pace. Um, and now with, with very easy to use and implement um, gene editing culture, um, you know, the, the Nobel Prize just went to the two women who were responsible for developing the, the technology of CRISPR-Cas9, which is basically like Control-C, Control-V gene editing. Um, those are being applied in all sorts of ways to get microbes to do exactly the things we want them to do, to basically make precision fermentation where we say, okay, I want this molecule. I want the flavor of vanilla. I want a glue. I want synthetics like spider silk, which is many times stronger than steel. And now we can do that at the whim of turning on the switch of a bioreactor in a laboratory somewhere. So it's, it really is a brave new world. And as scary as it might seem to, you know, be charging headlong into it, um, because don't forget, most times where humans have come up with some sort of amazing technological hack or fix, you know, 20, 30 years later, we find out that it's destroying the ozone layer or killing native populations or whatever it may be. But um, I, I think our understanding is deep enough now and the stakes are high enough that we can't avoid looking to these solutions um, to, to solve problems in alternative manners. So, yeah. Mm. I'm wondering also um, the element of control somehow um, is something really fascinating to me. Um, mm -hmm. when working with living organisms and also knowing that our bodies are more microbes than human actually yeah. and this kind of relationship that we have with the microbial world is somehow hidden and this hidden world or maybe perhaps invisible world to some degree um, well initially is invisible but if humans 
are controlling it somehow like who ends up having agency or the voice like how much of a voice does do the microbes have or the bacteria world have when you're working with them like how do you as a chef speak to the microbes or the microbial world that is i i love i love that thought because it's a deep deep and profound realization that you have when you work with fermentation when you try to communicate with a, a voiceless class of life um you know microbes have no morality they have no ability to communicate symbolically they can do it on the chemical level and they do it fantastically well almost to an art form there's this there's this um i guess it's like a feature of microbial existence called quorum sensing where they're basically tasting their environment and and you know you know approaching or avoiding the substances on a chemical gradient in, in their sphere of influence. Um, and they'll almost, you know, release chemicals to signal to their, their peers and, and other microbes of their same kin that, Oh, there's, you know, harmful microbes over there that are releasing toxins that will kill us. So you see these large scale, almost intelligent patterns form, but they're not patterns that we can necessarily interact with at the human scale. When you're just, a guy in a, in a kitchen making a vat of miso. Um, the funniest part for me, I think, is that um, at my old job and even in my new job where I'm working as an application scientist for a biotech company, um, you know, things need to be consistent. Humans love consistency. We hate. <laughs> if 2020 has been any guide, we hate surprises. <laughs> oh, God, it messes up our day. Um, and microbes just do what they do. So, so when, when you work with microbes and when you try to be creative with what you can get them to say or how you can get them to express different flavors or molecules or chemicals or aromas, you want to be able to do that again and again and again in an exact way. Like maybe sometimes with materials, you, you can do that if you're harvesting granite or, or you know, forming concrete or what have you. It works to your whim because the material can't really speak back doesn't have its own ideas about what it wants to do. Um, so there's this, you know, it's like, what happens when an immovable object meets an unstoppable force? Like my will and determination against something that could care less about what I think because it can't even think about what I think. Hmm. Uh, there is this surrendering of control. There is this leaning into the chaos of, of evolution and, and to the natural world and biological processes. And it only truly really gets exciting when you can accept that and see um, the deviations or, or, or you know, the hiccups or the chaos of the system as an inherently beautiful trait within the system and accept that no things won't be the same from batch to batch that your creativity, your, your, your preconceived notions about how something's supposed to be on the outcome um, will always have these, these nuances of chance and, and, and difference about them. Um, and there's a concept in fermentation that I love. It's, it's, it's Korean. Um, the Korean word for it is sonmat, which translates to hand taste. And that is, you know, that if I, as a, a fermenter, a maker of kimchi or, or donjang put my hands into it then my microbial voice all the bacteria that live on my breath on my skin in my hair ends up in that product and lends its own unique imprint you know puts its handprint if you will mm -hmm. uh into uh the product indelibly so it's 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 a beautiful concept and you just have to surrender to it but likewise as i mentioned um, how do you contrast that with being creative with microbes? I almost felt like I was, you know, robbing you of, of your work in understanding materiality and understanding like the, the, the life cycles of materials, because, you know, I have some architect friends who would absolutely say that, you know, wood or stone um, or, or, or composite materials or, or jesmonite do have voices and you have to understand how to work with them to be able to, craft objects in, in, in 
in the human landscape. What do you think about that? Yes. (laughs) 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 Completely. I don't think we can claim to be the only species that has a voice just because we vocalize and have verbal communication doesn't mean that's the only way of communicating. And I think for me, I think there's so much to explore within other forms of language, which are more sensorial, embodied. You talk about um, that Korean term, son mat, um, hand taste, and that for me is like a language of embodied intelligence and embodied intelligence, which is so much about intuition, um, which is something that a lot of us have really forgotten in, I would say, the global north to some degree, um, and or aren't really tuning into that as much as we could, actually. And it's, it's very present in all of us. It's just we don't have the capacity or the patience to even feel into that or tune into that. And I think when working with our hands or, I mean, there's such an intuition involved through observation and also um, listening, ultimately. And these two ways of connecting to the material world is really, really important, I think, Um, because materials all have their own voices. It's just we have different ways of communicating with them. And it's not a conversation like we're having right now. It will be one of observation and one of listening. So I think listening to materials is something that we definitely need to do more of and like immediately and therefore we can gain a much larger understanding and also appreciation which ultimately guides us towards a relationship which is framed on kinship i think like we're trying to build kin with the non-human world and ultimately that's where we need to be heading so that we ultimately become guardians or stewards or caretakers rather than dominant forces Mm -hmm. over the material world, which is a place we have existed for since the industrial revolution, I think. And that has kind of propelled us to a space where it, we're only producing at a rate where it's only for mass production and at a scale which is kind of impossible to achieve on every single, with every single material. Mm-hmm. It's, it shouldn't exist for every single material because not every single material is the same or has the same life or has the same capacity. Like each material has a life and a death, a birth, life and death and a rebirth, just as we do. And for me, it's the temporality of everything is what's so beautiful, actually. And all of these different, I guess, life cycles to some degree is kind of seeing the world as a living world rather than a, a world that um, is for us to tine, kind of extract and use for human consumption. Yeah, totally. I am, I am 100% on that vibe um, lately. Um, and it, it's really, you know, leaning into that. First, just a couple of things you just mentioned. Um, this, this kind of tension, this, this adversarial nature in, in, in the global north, in, in the Western world, um, where science is the dominant kind of baseline for us accepting reality. Um, and of course, you know, I am, I lean into science. I, I describe myself as a scientist, but I totally feel 
you know, ciencia, to know, is somehow at odds with what it means to feel um, these days. And it's almost like it's dismissed where, of course, we, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but like evidence-based reality um, leaves no room for the, the, the emotional states we know have guided humanity for, for millennia, if you will. Um, especially in our relationship to nature where we've been able to thrive. If you look to indigenous populations on you know, the West Coast of North America and places like that, um, they know things without doing those triple blinds <laughs> um, control studies uh, just by being in nature and feeling their environments. If you, if you ever listen to indigenous wisdom of that sort. Um, and then uh, when, when you were talking about the life cycle of materials, you know, the things that populate our existence, when you think that, okay, I have a beautiful apartment and there's a bookshelf from Ikea and, you know, a, a composite countertop where I make my bread and sour pickles and, you know, sourdough pizza, whatever it may be. But there are histories to all of these things. They were at some point mined from the earth. You know, the, the, the titanium white paint was refined from some sort of titanium oxide in the ground. Um, and, and that living history um, reminds me of, of Jane Bennett's Vital Materiality, the, the professor from the United States, um, where she speaks, you know, at length about um, the histories that embody materials. Uh, that we use to populate our lives. You know, we think that we're sterile, that we're boxed off, that we exist in isolation. And we don't. But, you know, I've, I've kind of got a question for you. Like, even in hearing you talk about materials and talk about these overarching concepts that are quite lofty and, and, and quite abstract, I mean, I almost see you as like an advocate for things that people don't, consider in their in their day-to-day -day lives but you do it with this amazing kind of creative language like like a like a visual language and and uh, an amazing communicative tone um to parlay these ideas where does that creativity come from to you because you know people would look at rocks or, or alternative materials or reusing plastic bottles as joinery and think it's quite boring or think it's quite mechanical, but you make it come to life, especially in your book uh, that you published a couple years ago. Um, where, where does that inspiration, how does that intersect with what you, you speak about on the day-to-day? -day? Mm, such a good question. Um, where does that come from? I think for me, it comes from like a long history of being misunderstood. Hmm. And are you are you an only child or or are you the youngest child or middle child? No, I'm a middle child. The middle child. Okay, that's middle. <laughs> Maybe that explains a lot, actually. Yeah. I'm not playing therapist here, but I was like, wait a second, this sounds familiar. Cool. Are cool. you also middle? Like well, I'm the youngest, so Okay, so, sure. Yeah. That comes with so, its own set of yeah. Yeah, other parameters. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and I think also being trained as a textile designer um, in my formal education, there's always been a place where we're never kind of acknowledged, um, or our roles aren't really understood in terms of like what we actually do except for, you know, ask. I get asked, oh, what do you do? And I say, I'm a textile designer. And the usual response would be, so can you make me a dress? Or can you make me a cushion? Yeah. And, you know, yes, I can. <laughs> yeah. But also, um, I could also make a material or a, a textile that could potentially power your home. You know, this is also another way of seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think these other ways of seeing um, have really shaped the way that I, I guess, operate and conduct myself and are able to kind of build bridges, ultimately. Mm -hmm. I think 
that is really my role ultimately to like build bridges through forms of translation materials are beings that are translatable across so many different fields um and also they are conduits in themselves to actually speak to these other fields and whether it's kind of looking at say a single organism such as algae or seaweed it has the ability to, to be fuel food um insulation architecturally and you know plant-based dyes for fabric and also for paper ink so many things uh, beauty products even and i think the, the versatility of all of these materials actually really speak to me as a human being because i think he, being human also allows us to be incredibly versatile we have the like even you describing the many roles that you possess or have been trained in or have trained yourself in that's versatility. Humans are not just one thing. Yeah. We evolve, so do materials. We have this kind of parallel relationship somehow of wanting to be more than just what we're being told, basically, to be. And I think that kind of misunderstanding allows us to not really achieve our full potential and there's been a deep frustration um, in my personal life being myself but also with the path that I've taken with design yeah. and design is something that's totally misunderstood but it and then you go deeper um, of materials being misunderstood that and that's the basis of everything yeah. so if we don't understand materials how can we understand anything else um, not least ourselves I th exactly I think, I, th I think there's really like a parallel in between you know our two worlds which might seem very disparate you're like oh well, what does fermentation have to do with you know like what you might consider to build a boat or a house out of um but they're environments. They're both environments. I mean, that's the core of what fermentation is. It's the difference in between, uh, you know, a rotting vegetable in a field and, and something delicious that you would want to serve as a side dish to your dinner. Um, it's about, if not controlling, then at least influencing environments, but also giving voice to the voiceless. This is kind of like a theme I keep feeling in this conversation. It's like, if, mm -hmm. if you pay attention, if you really pay attention, if you really kind of look close and say, you know, with, with through your loop, through your magnifying glass, like, oh, what, what's this? Even, you know, as it pertains to seaweed, this thing that washes up on the shore that everyone's like trotting through and they take their stroll on the beach, it might rot in the summer and stink to high hell. But um, if you really look at it, you're like, wow, seaweed's fascinating. It's developed this amazing capacity to keep moisture inside of itself in the ocean, it's developed all sorts of incredible molecules that form gels at, at, at like room temperature and have amazing implications for things humans might want to do or need to do. Um, and in, in doing that, in, in kind of acting as that advocate for, for voiceless substances that populate the human landscape, uh, I, I think we lend we lend those things power and we kind of grow the scope of, if not just, you know, interspecies relationships, then, you know, the, the, the non-human world at large. Yeah. Yeah. It's endless and a, a dialogue that just continues to surprise me also. Um, and I'm constantly learning I don't think there will be ever a day that I will say, Yes, I know everything about the material world. And that is what is so incredibly enriching and motivating and life-giving also, I think. Would you say that's like the, the, the modus operandi of your journey? <laughs> Probably. 
you're like, I don't know everything, but I need to know as much as I possibly can before I die. <laughs> yes. And I will continue to be a student of this world. And yeah, I think that's why I think the role of like guardianship or stewardship or caretaking feels more akin to like how I um, conduct myself or even operate in the space that I operate in. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, speaking more to that, like, well, first of all, what do you doing in Lagos and because I know you're London based, but beyond that, what, what are you doing in the future? What, what sort of projects are you working on? So I'm here working with a friend, um, Tushar. He owns a few spaces here. Uh, one of them I'm staying in right now, actually 16 by 16 is the artist residence space. Um, cool. And he now has, gained access to a new space in Lagos Island and where it's called Plan B. And we've been talking over the past few months in understanding how this space could come to life. Um, It's been abandoned for a while and the community around it has, well, there's nothing really around that provides space for recreation or public spaces or even space for dialogue or conversation everything kind of really happens on the streets um and there's such an informality to the way people i guess navigate this city um even with the infrastructure that's lacking Uh, water being one, plumbing, um, just access to very foundational and fundamental things to just live day to day. Electricity, for example. Mm. So we're here to kind of work together on bringing this space to life through plants, basically. And Nigeria is a country which is incredibly fertile. It can grow anything. You throw a seed out into the soil and it will just pop up. And and it's just so rich in terms of its agriculture. And historically as well, it's, you know, almost fed the world, really. I've actually been doing some readings about like, like historically, like uh, Bantu agriculture mm. in like human prehistory and, and, what the Bantu were to Nigeria and, and all of sub-Saharan Africa. But it's like remarkable technologies that they had to be able to grow in, in some of the most, you know, fertile parts of, of the human cradle. So still makes sense yeah. that there's reverberations to this day. Yeah. Yeah. But at the moment, well, and it has been for some time, everything gets exported and nothing remains for people that actually live here. They have to then re-import yeah. it, which is astonishing to me. Um, and to many, obviously, that live here. Um, And so basically this space, I'm helping design, ultimately, and we're using, we're kind of sourcing materials of the land and that speak to this place. And that is in the form of, like, loofah, calabash, um, which is used for musical instruments as well as vessels for carrying water, Yep. and all sorts of things and um we're using also rubber tires for where we have a radio station which is going to open up very soon so it's going to be community radio um for giving voice to people and like people of lagos island and beyond and that is something that we feel very passionate about in terms of offering space and we're going to have like a a garden which will also be partly fermentation food Mm. and also um food and also uh indigo dyeing as well so plant dyes and things like this um which would be amazing to speak to you about at some point once we're like we're looking at sugarcane and palm wine and even tequila because agave also grows here 
optimism. But yeah, we're like deeply excited about that. Well, I am also like, because I, I love fermented foods. It's part of my culture also. Most, most people do. Yeah, of course. They, they know like, oh, what, what are these trendy kids doing on, on Instagram and TikTok fermenting? They're like, what's that? It's weird. <laughs> Meanwhile, they take a sip of uh, coffee and then have like a grilled cheese sandwich and don't even. Yes. Thoughts. Kimchi galore. Yes, exactly. exactly. That's super um, cool. Yeah. And then there's going to be kitchen and bar, which will kind of facilitate that as well as this larger community space where we can run events, workshops, schools, and things like this. Um, and it's going to, and there's artists and residence spaces above as well. And we're kind of gearing all of that kind of knowledge towards um, providing models for self-organization of how to live, basically, without relying on government, um, governmental infrastructure, because it's just lacking. And that can be done through very sort of lo-fi ways of living, growing your own food mm-hmm. or cooking or um, dyeing your own clothing or making your own clothing. Or yeah. like, and shelter, clothing, you know, all sorts of things like this. Um, there'll be a family. Ab lab of sorts, like a maker space, I guess, um, which will be very low tech also. Um, but yeah, it's very informal, but very inclusive at the same time. So I'm currently making a lot of the objects with the community that live there and run the space as well. So it's also training, providing tools, um, sharing, ultimately. Super Um, cool. Yeah, it's really amazing. But yes, an ongoing project uh, will be for some time, but it's an incredible journey so far. Nice. And how's life post Noma for you? It has been fantastic. Look, I, I don't regret working at Noma. You know, I spent my entire culinary career kind of climbing the ladder, trying to find better and better restaurants until I ended up at the best restaurant in the world. Um, it was difficult, though. Um, it, it was extremely demanding. It was a place where you work like 18 hours a day, sleep four hours, get up and do it all over again. But... Um, no, life in the uh, in in its wake uh, has been interesting. Um, I, I feel like a lot of people who might have wanted to kind of tap me on the shoulder and ask if I'd be up for projects um, have done so <laughs> now that I'm no longer tied to the restaurant and kind of working for someone else. So it's been great. But uh, I mean, it was recently announced uh, in in one of the Danish papers. But I have landed uh, of all places at um, a biotech company called Christian Hansen which sounds super generic and like, well, that could be anything. Um, but it's actually hugely important. I mean, this is a company that has been around for 150 years that got its start, um, you know, kind of standardizing rennet for cheese production in the 1800s for the European market. Um, basically, you know, isolating the enzymes that would curdle milk into cheese that you could then age and turn into cheddar or brie or whatever it may be. Um, but you know, over the course of the past hundred years, they've, they've really gotten deep into microbiology at all scales of food production, whether that's, um, for fermenting pickles, um, or, or sauerkraut or kimchi or brewing beer or the bacteria and yeast that go into wine. Uh, they have their hands in so, so much, um, and it was kind of a perfect fit in that a, they were based in Copenhagen and so was I. Um, we'd been in contact for a while because I was using some of their microbes to do really incredible things and coax amazing flavors out of products at Noma. Um, and they were trying to tap me for a new project right as I was leaving. And it turned into basically this onboarding as, you know, a, a prototyper and, and kind of project consultant. Um, so they're building me a lab at the moment where I get a, basically a, a playground to tinker with some of the 
over 40,000 different microbes in their collection uh, and see if I can't work within, you know, the fields of, of plant alternatives. So yeah, plants, uh, both our alleys right now um, to see if we can't make a, a plant-based pepperoni or a, a, a convincing burger out of fungal mycelium that could, you know, alleviate um, our dependence or, or reliance on meat without sacrificing any of the protein or taste or, or what have you. So um, it is, it, it really feels like punching up. I mean, working within gastronomy and fine dining, it's amazing. You push yourself to the limits of creativity. Uh, you rack your brains about how to express new things through flavors and food and experience. But at the end of the day, you're only feeding 50 to 100 people a night. And now I get to go to work and work on projects that will touch the lives of hundreds of millions of people a day. Um, on an average day, Christian Hansen is providing food to 1 to 1.5 billion people on Earth, which is an astronomical number. But that's just how much food gets transformed with microbes. And they're just one player. So you, you, you don't even realize kind of uh, the reach um, of fermentation or just how much space it fills in your daily life. Um, and I think it's an incredibly important place to be positioned um, within the global food system if you want to affect change, if you want to find sustainable solutions, if you want to wean ourselves off, wean ourselves off, you know, kind of the worser vices within our nature and then try and find sustainable solutions that might solve multiple problems uh, in one fell swoop. Um, so it's, it's, it's been inspiring and, you know, like you, forever student, I get to go to work and learn from PhDs in microbiology and, and food science and, and, you know, microbial ecology every single day. And anytime I have a question, there's someone with a very, very detailed answer that's informing my world and kind of filling in all the puzzle pieces of this amazing fabric. So um, it's cool. I can't complain. And there's, there's a few other projects on the go that I can't speak of yet, but I'm sure we'll bubble up to the surface in due time. Yeah, I hope to see another book from you at some point as well. Um, because, yes, this one is just mind-blowing, actually. Ah, thank you. Yeah, really. You. It sits very nicely on my shelf at home. I hope yeah. beside yours because orange and, and that teal green. Oh is, yeah, that's it's really like good a nice combo. color store. <laughs> yes. It is. Completely. Wow. Thank you so much, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was the Cross Catch Up with me, myself, Sitas Lunky, and David Silver. Hit subscribe in your podcast app if you'd like to hear more and head to cosstores.com to join the conversation online. And thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thank you.